How we doing? Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. I always carry an iPad, and uh, it's easier for me to read the text with a little bit bigger print at this stage. Um, if you need a Bible, grab a, a Bible. But last night I was, had my iPad, and I got something sticky on the back of my iPad, and I put it back in 1 Corinthians 7. I don't know if you can see my new page there. So I ripped my Bible right in the middle of our text today, which you never want to do. So if I get stuck at some point and need you to fill in my torn pages, I'll just call out. Maybe one of you can be paying attention and read for me. What a nightmare. Um, a couple things about harvest. Um, we do some things as a church um, well, I believe. There's a lot of things that we don't do well. And one of the things that we try to focus on as we gather on Sundays is we try to go to a passage, open it up, very plainly explain what it means so that you can leave here with an application of how you're supposed to live in light of God's word. That's a focus that we have here as a church. Another focus that we have is coming together and gathering and lifting high God's name in worship, praying and worshiping like we love the God that we're worshiping. That's important to us. And then we put you into smaller groups because we're a large church so that you can serve other people in the church, serve with other people in the church, and you can be known and know other people so that we can be doing life with other followers of Jesus Christ, the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. So that is somewhat our focus as we come together to worship. If you're new with us or if you've been with us for a while, it's a reminder. We're in a current series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we will typically go through God's word, be it Old Testament or New Testament, bouncing back and forth, trying to get the full counsel of God's word before you. Um, and when you do that, you come to passages like 1 Corinthians 7 that you would never preach unless you were committed to preaching through all of God's word. So I'm just giving you this a little bit as a preface today. Today is a little bit more awkward in working through the text than other texts would normally be. And we're going to hit on some important issues as we get into the text. I hope this morning will be practical for you. But to understand 1 Corinthians 7 and what we're going to be looking at, i got to give you three things as background so that it sets the context for the, our discussion. The first thing is this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church. It's in Greece. Corinth is a um, decadent city. It's kind of like Vegas. Its main temple is to Aphrodite, the love goddess. There is prostitution associated with worship. And I would just say, as the churches started in Corinth and people are coming to Christ, they're really confused about marriage. They're really confused about sex. And they're trying to figure out, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how to live very differently than their world. I don't think that sounds very different than our culture today, to be really honest. But that's what we're dealing with as a background. The second thing is, and this is important to understand this text in particular, the writers of the New Testament, Paul, Peter, John, many of these men believed that Jesus Christ was going to return very, very soon, probably in their lifetime. And there's reason for that. In the Old Testament, you don't see any prophecies 
that would give you indication that there was going to be a long gap between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ultimate return of Jesus Christ when he would come and take reign on earth. You don't see it in the Old Testament prophecies. Secondly, there was persecution in the early church and when you looked at the return of Christ, it was often associated with the people of God going through a period of testing. So not seeing it in the Old Testament prophets, going through heavy persecution, you'll see the New Testament writers write in a way that it's like Jesus is going to come at any moment. And there's a third reason for that. We find it in John 20, verse, or 21, verse 20. And it says in John 21, Jesus has just described to Peter, he's asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And then he explains that Peter is going to be led to a death. He's going to be martyred for the gospel. So if you're Peter and you've just heard that, look what Peter does. He does what any of us would do. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who had been reclining at a table close to him. And he said, uh, Lord, and, and had said, Lord, who is it going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So he looks at the other disciple next to him, John. And I always find it interesting that when John describes himself in the book that he wrote, he always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. That is so annoying to the other disciples, I'm sure. But Peter, in essence, has just been told he's going to be a martyr, and he turns to John, or he turns and looks at John and goes, what, how's this guy going to die? Like, tell me about this guy. And it says, Jesus said to him in verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And then it's interesting, it says in verse 23, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So the early church believed that John wouldn't die before the return of Jesus Christ. So all of these factors created an urgency to the way the church operated and the way the apostles taught in the New Testament because they believed that the return of Christ could be very near. They lived with an expectancy. And by the way, if they lived that way 2,000 years ago, I would make an argument that we should have a greater urgency and expectancy because we're seeing things in our lifetime that mirror some of the prophecies regarding the return of Christ that Paul and Peter didn't have access to because John didn't write it until the book of Revelation. So there is an urgency and an expectancy that Christ is going to return soon. And what happens is some of that's going to leak into the discussion in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's a third thing you've got to know. First, that it was an immoral culture. Second, that they were expecting the return of Christ quickly. But thirdly, the Corinthians have written a letter to Paul with specific questions. Verse 1 says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul is answering the questions to a letter asking specific questions that the Corinthians had written him. Here's the problem. We don't have their questions. All that we have is Paul's answers. So as I try to teach this this morning... I get to make up what I think are the Corinthians' questions. It's kind of like biblical jeopardy, okay? I get to hear the answers, but then I've got to form the question. I don't know exactly what they asked, but I'm going to do my best to answer four questions today based off Paul's answers that I think they asked. If I'm wrong, hopefully I'm close enough 
that the answers still make sense. Are you guys ready for this? A little bit backwards, we're gonna try this, but here's the first question that I believe the Corinthians are asking, which drives Paul's answer. Here it is. Is it better to get married or stay single? Is it better to get married or to stay single? The comedian slash theologian Chris Rock said this, do you wanna be single or, and lonely or married and bored? Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Those are some great options, aren't they? Now, if I'm answering the question, I hope that it's multiple choice and there's a C, which is none of the above. I, I hope there's a better solution than the two options that Chris Rock refers to but I think sometimes our world views marriage as boring and if you single as lonely like like it's either worse or more worser and I think God has a better plan for us he says in verse one now concerning the matters about which you wrote the question is is it better to get married or to stay single concerning these matters is it he says which you wrote and then Paul says it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Pretty clear answer, I think, right? So let's just close in prayer, okay? <laughs> okay, so okay, let, let's, let's explore this a little bit because that creates some problems for some of us. Would you agree? And so Paul gives this statement that seems so definitive, but actually this is a definitive statement based off what Paul writes later in the chapter. Here's what he says in verse 26 that I think in view of this present distress, it might be better to remain single. Verse 28, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. As a father and as a husband, um, that brings with it some concerns, some weight, some pressure to provide and to care for people other than myself. And even as I try to live for Jesus Christ, I also know that I have responsibilities back to my kids, my grandkids, and my family, and my wife. And Paul is just stating the obvious that when we get married, we take on additional responsibilities. He says in verse 32, one of the reasons he suggests that singleness is better is it frees us from these anxieties. Verse 34, and he says, of the married man, his interests are divided and he prays that we would secure, or the Lord would secure our undivided attention to the Lord, verse 35. But I don't think to take that first statement has, um, that's the definitive statement as applies to each of us is fair. Look at what he says in verse six. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself in. Most believe that Paul is a man who was married and is now widowed. He was a Pharisee and to be a religious ruler, a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to have a wife. Most believe that Paul is probably a widower. He says that I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the married and the widows, I say that it is, not, it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Couple things. Singleness in this passage is referred to as a gift. And when we look at spiritual gifts, each of us are given different spiritual gifts. All of us don't possess every gift. We possess different gifts. So the whole um, 
presentation of singleness as a gift would mean that it is not for all. Singleness, as long as it is without sex, is a choice that is honoring to God. But, but underneath what Paul is writing in the text, he's making it very, very clear that be it married or single, your spirituality is not determined by your marital status. God's best is not for all of us to remain single. It is a gift. For some, they're, they're not wired to be married. There are people that have the gift of singleness. That's okay. As long as your singleness involves sexual purity. As long as your singleness is not for your own selfishness, but your desire is to serve the Lord, to give him your undivided attention. In the text, some mistake this. Verse 9 says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. I think marriage is a little bit more, and God's intent for marriage is a little bit more than God's escape valve from temptation. What Paul is saying in these verses, he's saying, listen, I understand that sexual temptation for the single person, it's a real thing. It is a powerful temptation. And he's saying for some, it would be better to be married. In Genesis, even before sin enters the equation, man is alone, he is in the garden. God looks at man, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And he's given a spouse for companionship, to be fruitful and multiply. For most of us, marriage is going to be the most common path. And that's good. It was created that way by God. It was God's intent. For some that have the gift of singleness, that also has some advantages. But neither one of those is better or worse as it relates to your spiritual condition before God. I hope that's clear. That was the easiest question of the four. Okay? Let's turn up the heat here a little bit. All right, here's the second question. Is the wife supposed to submit to her husband in the bedroom? Is the wife supposed to submit to her husband in the bedroom? The answer to that question is no. Let me explain, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A little review on submission here. Throughout the New Testament, we can read in several passages that a wife is asked by God to submit to her husband. That is God's command. And it says that he submits, the wife submits to the husband as an act of obedience actually of submission to the Lord. A wife willingly submits to her husband. This is not a statement by God of value. It's a statement of order. But she does it in obedience, not just to her husband, but to the Lord. And husbands, you need to hear this. That is a willing act of your wife in submission to God. And if you're well, I would say it this way. There is nowhere in the Bible, husbands, that you are given the right to demand the submission of your wife. That is something she willingly gives in obedience to the Lord. And if you are playing the submit woman card in your marriage, you're already losing. And if you're playing the submit woman or wife 
card in the bedroom. It's not what God's intent. In this passage, it's very, very clear both ways that the husband does not have authority over his own body. That belongs to the wife and vice versa. The reality is, sadly, in the bedroom, our brokenness, our sin natures are on full display. Um, Say the husband, it could actually be either spouse. I've seen this work both ways, but say the husband becomes selfish and demanding and um, inconsiderate of his wife's needs in the bedroom. That's our sin nature on full display. Maybe one of the spouses says, I'm going to control the marriage. I'm going to control the relationship by controlling if, when we have sex. That's a manipulation. That's a control. And what the text is saying is note the language. There's rights. There's authority. Sex inside of marriage is not just a privilege and a pleasure. It is a responsibility. And it is far more than a physical act. It is an expression and experience of love at its deepest level. And Paul says in verse 5, stop depriving one another. To deny your partner is not your option. It's not your preference to deny your partner. The Bible calls it sin. In this regard, there's no difference between a man and the woman. Both are required to satisfy their spouse. And, And this is where the world has taken sex And they've twisted our approach and our view of sex. And in the process, they've destroyed the beauty of the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. What the world will tell you is sex is all about you. Your desires, your pleasures. Find a spouse that is sexually compatible with you so that your desires are met and fulfilled. And God is saying that's not even how sex was designed and created to operate. Your focus should be on satisfying your spouse. Your spouse's focus should be on satisfying you. And when that is how the relationship operates, it's more pleasing to God that our focus would be less on us, more about deferring to our spouse rather than demanding from our spouse. And in saying that, I've got to push this a little bit further. I've got to stretch your thinking as it relates to marital intimacy and sex. You guys ready for this? Sex is more than just your satisfaction. It's more than just satisfying your spouse. At its very core, sex is an act of worship. Sex is not unique in this. Everything we do is an act of worship, but sex is also an act of worship, and I press your thinking on this a little bit, when you're having sex, who are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? There's several options. I'll give you the multiple choice. You can be worshiping yourself and your desires and your pleasure. You can be worshiping the activity or the act of sex. You can be worshiping the person you're having sex with. And I would suggest you could even be worshiping some fantasy. Or it is possible while you are having sex like everything else in life, you can be giving proper worship to God. This is getting a little awkward, would you agree? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go a different direction. We're going to talk about food, okay? And we're going to change the subject. And let me explain how this works, okay? So 
I'll change it from sex to food for a minute to give us just a little bit of an awkward break. Is that okay? So talking about food. So this week on Thursday night, Kristen and I went out with a, 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 some friends of ours from church, a couple in the church. We'll call them Jeff and Kim because that's their names, okay? So Jeff and Kim <laughs> were at their house for dinner on Thursday night. We go over there. We enjoy great food. We enjoy good conversation. We enjoy good company. And it is possible for me as I leave that dinner to say, man, was that food good. Loved the food. And the focus of my appreciation or worship is on the meal. It's also possible for me to worship the company that I was with. Man, those are good friends and I'm glad that we're building this relationship. And I can worship the food and the friends. I can even worship the occasion. It was Valentine's Day, and what a wonderful thing to celebrate Valentine's Day and everything that's associated with that. I can worship all of those things, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have an ability to do what the unbeliever will never do. I can worship the God who created the food that I enjoyed, the relationships that I was allowed, allowed to enjoy, and the occasion which let me celebrate that. Does that make sense? So there is a way, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that in everything we do, we can set our worship back on God who provided us the very things that we enjoy. Can you guys back apply this to what I was saying about sex so that I don't have to? <laughs> Thank you. That's what I'm saying. And that is how God intended for our marital relationships to work we're allowed to enjoy sex at a deeper level because we're not just worshiping the other person or ourselves or the act, but we're worshiping the God that has created the relationship of husband and wife, created marriage, and allowed us to enjoy these things. Please also note in the text, it says, don't deprive one another except perhaps for agreement. That's an important word. Leave me alone tonight. I want to pray. That's not agreement. Okay, For a limited time, perhaps for prayer. Most of you can't pray that long, okay? And what I would say is, and this is important, though I joke, this is important. What God is saying here is there are times in our lives that our devotion to God will let us, will, will force us to even forfeit some of our basic needs and desires. Because the pursuit of Jesus Christ should be our ultimate. That takes me to our big idea. The thing you treasure most will be what shapes your life. The thing you treasure most will be what shapes your life. Here's question three. Some relief, okay? Help us understand divorce and remarriage. I think there was a lot of confusion about this in the Corinthian church. Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Let me stop there for a moment. And just give you a broad picture, if I could, of God's view on marriage. He takes your marriage vows very serious. God is not a fan of divorce. It says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, regarding our vows, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. 
For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. Ecclesiastes 5.4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Kristen and I were talking about this last night and she reminded me of an occasion probably 15, 20 years ago, well before this church, where there was a younger couple that came to us. They were just looking for some marital advice and they'd been married six months or so and they came to us and they said, here's our situation. We got married six years ago. We thought we were in love, but six months into the marriage, we're not in love. As a matter of fact, we're not even in like. We can't stand each other. But here's the good news. No kids, she's not pregnant, and it makes sense to us that we should divorce now before this gets really complicated. What do you think? And we were like, if that's something you wanna do, go ahead, but understand, you're never gonna get married again. They're like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, read the text. Like, God takes these vows very seriously, and what it says is if you choose to divorce, and you just are tired of your spouse, if you don't have a biblical reason for divorce, the requirement is that you stay single. In light of that text, they're still married. But here's the incredible thing. They like each other. And they love each other. And they realize that by being obedient to God, sometimes God surprises you, as in always surprises you, and showed up in their marriage goes on and says in verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Okay, let me say some things as it relates to divorce that I think we see in this text. Marriage is a covenant, but because of sin, because of brokenness that is caused by sin, because of brokenness in our culture, which leads to brokenness in our future. God gives two exceptions when it is right or allowable for a person to seek a divorce. The first is in the case of adultery. This is having sex outside of the marriage. And when you make a covenant in marriage, you agree to be sexually active with just your spouse. When that vow is broken, that is adultery. And, and please hear me in this, because sometimes we get in cu uh, confused on this. The act of adultery is the divorce. It is the breaking of the marriage covenant. When one spouse chooses to be unfaithful, that act of unfaithfulness is the divorce. He broke the vow of marriage. To the other spouse, to the offended party, they have a choice. They can stay in the marriage and basically restore the covenant. They are free to leave the marriage, but in either 
situation. Whether they stay or whether they leave, they are commanded to forgive. And as a church, we will most often counsel for the restoration of the marriage because we believe that is a better picture of the gospel. It is a better picture of, gay, of grace and it gives the best opportunity for lasting forgiveness. But there are occasions with unrepentant adultery, continuous adultery, where if that spouse were to divorce and leave, we would support it because we see a biblical exception. It says in Matthew 9, verse 19, verse 8, speaking of certificates of divorce, it says, because of the hardness of your heart, because of sin, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. So from the beginning, it wasn't so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Again, we see the exception clause there in Matthew. There's a second reason why divorce is allowed by God that is given to us in this text. And that's if the unbelieving spouse leaves or there's abandonment. Verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother and sister or sister, the husband or wife is not enslaved. What's in mind here is a couple is married, they're unsaved, one of them hears the gospel and is saved, and now you have one spouse saved, one spouse not saved, and the unbelieving spouse is unwilling to stay with the saved spouse. That's what's in mind here. This is not talking about believers who marry unbelievers. The Bible it's interesting to me, the Bible never says anything. It is silent in the matter of interracial marriage. It says volumes on the topic of interfaith marriages. And believers are told, don't get married to someone who is an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And what he's saying is, if you're married and your spouse is not saved, one of two things is going to happen. And I think the basis for this is 2 Corinthians 2.15. It says of believers, we are the aroma of Christ. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. As a follower of Jesus Christ, what Paul is saying is we stink. We have an odor. We have an aroma. And to some, that is compelling. It leads them to the gospel. To others, it absolutely pushes them away. We become a frustration and an annoyance. And the same thing will happen when one spouse comes to Christ and the other does not. Either, and we've seen this happen many times, if the spouse is willing to stay, the transformation that is taking place in the spouse's life is so noticed by the other spouse that they are compelled and are led to the gospel because of it. We have seen many cases in our church where a, a wife is saved and over years of praying or periods of praying, all of a sudden the change and transformation brings her kids to Christ or her family to Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. If the unbeliever is willing to stay, don't leave. They could be made holy. Not that you can save your kids. Not that you can save your spouse. But perhaps you don't know God would use you as the gospel mechanism to bring your spouse to the Lord. 
but there are going to be other occasions where the unbeliever says, absolutely, get me out of here, I didn't sign up for this, and in those cases it says you're not enslaved, let them leave. So the two exceptions that I see would be in the case of adultery or in the case of abandonment. A couple things, again, let me press this a little further. If you are not married and you are single and you are dating, please hear this caution. Don't date an unbeliever. Dating is an awful form of evangelism. The problem is you get romantically and emotionally entangled with the unbeliever and all of a sudden you're not thinking clearly. And the the other problem is, is the unbeliever gets romantically entangled with you. They understand that this faith problem, this difference in faith could be a cause to break the marriage so they might agree to go to church or play the part of a Christian and I would just suggest to you that there is a loneliness that is more profound than being alone. And I can introduce as singles you to many married people in this church who find themselves married to an unbeliever. They don't share a spiritual intimacy. And I'm just telling you, the, God, the Bible warns us, stay away from that. It is a difficult, difficult situation. One more thing, and this is important. I believe that our role as a church and our role as pastors is to teach you what God's word says about marriage. To teach you what it says about marriage and have you apply the principles into your own specific circumstances. There will be times that as pastors, as leaders in this church, we will be called to speak into a situation in a marriage where there's been unfaithfulness and there's been a lack of repentance and the sin is obvious to all. The church dealt with this two chapters ago in 1 Corinthians 5. And the church said, hey, that's wrong. And we, you, you put the unbeliever out. But in many circumstances in a marriage, we don't live in the home. I don't understand motives. I don't want to counsel for one hour a week and suppose that what I'm seeing in the room is an accurate picture of what goes on the hundreds of hours that I'm not in the home. So my role as a pastor, unless it's a clear case of known sin, is to give you the biblical principles, explain to you that I'm not the judge, but there is a judge and that God sees. There's reasons why it's biblical for a marriage to divorce. If the spouse dies. But if you murdered the spouse, it's not okay. Hey, my spouse, my unbelieving spouse left the marriage. I'm free to remarry. Not if you drove the spouse to leave by your completely Christless behavior. And these are the things that you can't ask leadership in a church to be judge and jury over. The best we can do is speak God's word into your life and explain to you that there is a judge and that you will give an account someday. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's the next question. As it relates to, that was divorce, how about remarriage? Can widows remarry? Yes. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Paul goes on and gives further instruction to the Ephesus pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.14. He says, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So he actually encourages widows to remarry. 
What, how about somebody who isn't widowed but has had their spouse break the marriage covenant through unfaithfulness or who the unmarried spouse will, or the unbelieving spouse will not stay with them? And I believe the logic follows that just like you are freed from the bounds at death, if there's been a biblical reason for you to seek divorce, you are also not enslaved and you are free to remarry. Now, other respected pastors will teach somewhat differently on these matters. And I understand that. And I do this with great caution. But here we're going to default to grace. And marriage is complicated. And the reality is, because of the culture that we live in, it's a rare person that would be in this room that has not been affected by either brokenness in their own marriages or brokenness in the marriages of family members. And some of these people, this happened before they were ever saved or came to Christ. And we've got this brokenness in our past and broken relationships and we come to church and we come to the cross and we seek repentance and forgiveness and please hear me, it is granted that is called grace. And the problem sometimes is we carry so much guilt and shame because of things that we did before we were saved or things and mistakes and regrets that we have that we forget that our guilt and shame was meant to be left at the foot of the cross. When Jesus died in our place, he took that guilt from us. I'm giving you God's instruction. He is not for divorce. There are cases where he allows divorce, but it has always been God's intent that we keep our vows and when we agree to be married, that we stay married for a lifetime. But I'm also acknowledging the brokenness because of sin and I want you to hear me. There's grace for that. Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Should we break God's known laws so that we can experience the grace of God? That's crazy. But the reality is there is grace and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Here's number four. And this is the important one because this actually underlies the entire chapter. Is it better to be married or to stay single? Is a wife supposed to submit to her husband in the bedroom? Help us understand divorce and remarriage. Here's the main question that I see in the text. How should our lives change when we are saved? This is addressed in verses 17 through 38. I'm not going to go through them verse by verse. Again, let me remind you of the big idea. The thing you treasure most will be what shapes your life. In verses 17 through 19, the question on the table is circumcision. Do I have to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And what happens to the Gentiles that come to Christ? Do they have to be circumcised? Do the Jews have to be uncircumcised? Whatever that is. Okay, so this question is, what do we do when we come to Christ? And how should we live as followers of Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is in verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Hear this, but keeping the commandments of God. Paul, in all of this discussion, marriage, remarriage, divorce, sex, now circumcision and then slavery in some of the places he's going to go, the underlying concern that runs through this whole passage is what has your undivided devotion? And Paul is saying it's not about conformity. It's not that every church is going to look the same and worship the same and operate the same. 
There are churches in our community that are faithfully communicating the word of God and their um, model, their methods, their worship, their styles are very different than ours. God bless them. That's okay. We don't have this thing figured out. And God is not asking us all to conform to the same way, but he's saying be committed for most to be obedient to the commands of God. He goes on in verse 20 and starts a discussion on, he's, he's addressing, I believe this is their question, what do I do if when I came to Jesus Christ I'm a slave? Now I'm told to be a slave of Jesus Christ, but I'm already a slave to this other man. How do I operate under that context? And it's interesting, this is answered in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. Again, the emphasis is be obedient to God in whatever position you find yourself in. It's interesting. Paul does not condone or condemn slavery in this passage. He says it's better to be free and avail yourself of it if possible. And yes, I believe Paul believed slavery was wrong. I believe slavery is wrong. But you need to hear, it's interesting, he wasn't addressing the institution of slavery because Paul's number one objective was not social reform. He was not a social reformer. He was a gospel proclaimer. That's what we're called to be as pastors. That's what we're called to be as preachers. That's what we're called to be as the church. All about the gospel. If we become primarily about social injustice and social reform, we've fallen into the ditch. That's not what the, what the church is called to be. But hear me. When we boldly proclaim the gospel and we live in obedience and follow the example of Jesus, social reform always follows. Now, the church's record throughout history is not perfect. They've got some blood on their hands in the way they've executed this. But in the general scope of history, you can look and as followers of Jesus Christ and the gospel spread, what you saw was kindness, compassion, generosity, follow the spread of the gospel. The gospel conforms, I mean, transforms a community and a culture as we live by Jesus Christ. Here's a third thing. Listen to Paul's urgency as it relates to evangelism and his service to the Lord. Verse 26, he says that I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Speaking about people who are engaged, they're like, should we go ahead and get married or should we stay single? Again, he has this return of Christ very soon and the current persecution that they're under. And he's saying, I don't want you to take up the cares of a family and the anxieties of caring for a family. I want your undivided devotion to be on the Lord. He says in verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. There is an urgency in preaching the gospel. And a fourth thing, see this, there's an eternal focus that Paul always has in mind. He says in verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. He says in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention to the Lord. There it is. The thing you treasure will be the thing that shapes your life. As it relates to your marriage, am I looking for what pleases me or am I looking for what pleases the Lord? What has your undivided passion and pursuit? In your singleness, 
Is your undivided attention on the Lord? Is that your consuming passion or is your consuming passion to get married? And marriage isn't a bad thing, but it's not the only thing. And if your undivided passion is on the Lord, be it married or single, I think there's a better alternative than the two that Chris Rock gave you at the beginning of the sermon. Where is your undivided attention? Be it slave or free, what has your undivided devotion? See, underlying all of this, all the way back throughout the book of Corinthians as he deals with problems, difficulties, questions, Paul's underlying theme through all of it is, who are you living for? Who are you living for? See, there's this thing called the gospel. And the gospel says, in the brokenness of our world, in the brokenness of our lives, not based off anything we deserve, but the grace of God is broken through. And though we don't deserve it, he has given us mercy, he has given us grace, and he has granted us relationship with the holy God. If we understand that, that should be our driving, consuming passion. Please hear the heart of one of your pastors here. Singleness is hard. There's temptations, there's loneliness. I get it. I get it. I understand that many desire to be married, but God hasn't brought that right person. You're not in that space right now. My prayer for you would be in this season of longing for something different, that you would learn the discipline of allowing God to be the thing that you run to, that completes you, that is your passion. To those of you who are married, I don't have to explain to you, you already know that your spouse cannot fill the deepest needs of your soul. And to place that weight on them only makes marriage more difficult. You crush them. And the truth is that marriage is not always easy. Sometimes it's hard, and it's not always Valentine's Day. And love is a choice, and it is a commitment, and it is a vow, and it is a covenant. And many of you know this, that when you say, I'm going to do what God has called me to do, I'm going to keep my vows before the Lord, and I'm going to do things the way that God has called me to do them, do you understand he meets you there? He answers that prayer. He blesses the man who commits his ways to obedience. I've been married 35 years. I wouldn't trade it. Has it always been easy for Kristen? No. <laughs> but after 35 years, the faithful commitment to doing what God's called us to do, even in the difficult seasons, has led to a sweetness in the relationship that I would desire in every marriage. God's true to his promises when we give him our undivided attention. See, that's what Paul's driving at. 
And as we close this service, we're back where we are when we close every service. What has the throne of your heart? What is the thing that you are ultimately worshiping? What is the focus of your life? Do you believe the promises of God? Is he true to what he says? Do we really believe that in Jesus Christ we will experience the fullness of joy? Do we really believe that in all things when we worship him his his utmost, we will experience life at a greater level than the unbeliever could ever experience? Because we're worshiping what is real, what is true, what is reality. There is a God, there is a Lord, there is a King of Kings. And amazingly, that King of Kings desires to be in relationship with us and call us his children. That's incredible. Let's live in light of that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, a difficult chapter. And... um, as I teach, I feel, um, I feel the weight in this room. And for some, these are verses that are, that are difficult to hear. For some, there's brokenness in their past, and I would pray that um, they would believe your promises, that they are released from guilt and shame when they kneel at the foot of the cross, repent of sin, and trust in you as Savior. There are others who struggle with singleness and they long for the day when they have a companion, they have a spouse. I would pray that in this season you would teach them that you are sufficient in all things. And I pray for those who are in a marriage right now that is is struggling, that is difficult, Father, I would pray that they would cry out to you, that they would trust your promises, that they would say, let you be my strength. Let you be my security. Let you be my identity. Father, may you be foremost in all things. May you be Lord of all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.